I'm Abby Kenny, and you are listening to Upsound. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to another episode of Upzoned, a show where we take one big story in the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kenny. I'm a planner at Gold Evans, and joined with me today is my friend Chuck Marone, founder of the Strong Towns organization. How are you doing today, Chuck? Hey, Abby. Doing fantastic. We're recording this just before Halloween, so I'm looking forward to a spooky weekend. Yeah, so am I. I'm very excited about Halloween. I don't really have much in terms of big plans, but nevertheless, I'm still excited about Halloween. It's one of my favorite holidays. So I'm hoping that we have lots of kids come by because if we don't, I-, I will be a diabetic by the middle of next week. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to keep my husband from becoming a diabetic right now because we bought our candy um, on Sunday. So I'm trying to keep that bag of candy intact until tomorrow. We'll see if that works out. I don't have a bag. I have a crate. We are in the premier neighborhood in central Minnesota. So like we get, I would estimate we get six, 700 kids come to our house and so I have something like 2,500 pieces of candy or something like that. I have a, literally a tote box full of candy. And uh, yeah. Definitely don't eat that. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Well, the article that we're, we are going to be discussing today was published in The Economist and is entitled, Home Ownership is the West's Biggest Economic Policy Mistake. The article basically describes how housing markets in the rich world are suffering from both sudden crashes and chronic disease and why our infatuation with home ownership is to blame. In the author's perspective, it is hard to show whether property ownership makes us better citizens, saying that the cult of owner occupation has more costs than it does benefits. It reinforces nimbyism, which keeps new housing from being built, and encourages government subsidies that build up mortgage debt that will make crises more likely. The conclusion is that it doesn't have to be this way. Pointing to alternative housing markets in other places, the author describes Tokyo's extensive deregulation of housing development, Switzerland's localized housing incentive approach, New Zealand's property taxation system, and Germany's culture of long-term rental tenancies and protections for renters. The author does point out a few points of progress in the United States and Britain, including the Yimby movement and focus on renter protections, as well as heightened scrutiny for putting out risky mortgages on lending. So the conclusion is that it's basically time to tear down the system that we have and rebuild a housing market that works. So Chuck, your team has written a lot about issues surrounding housing, and I'm curious if you see ownership as the root cause of this predicament that we face. Not precisely. It's interesting because I've had a subscription to The Economist for like 15 years now, and I I found myself reading it less and less. And reading this article, it's like, oh yeah, that's why. (laughs) It's written from the perspective of a very, as Chris and I would say, a very front row type of view, you know, this idea that if we could just free up the markets to build more rental housing and more apartments and more flats and more luxury condos, that somehow this would would solve things. I don't 
fundamentally at the end of the day feel that ownership is either the problem or the solution. We often frame it as the solution to a whole lot of problems. If we go back to the end of World War II, it became American consensus because on the one hand, you had you know the progressives saying, this is how we create a more equitable society. You know, let's give people and, you know, let's put that in air quotes because they, they didn't include all people, but let's, let's put, you know, people into homes and uh, that will share the wealth a little bit and create a, a broader, more equitable society. And then you had conservatives who were saying, yes, let's put people in homes and they won't be socialists and, uh, you know, communists. And they, they will be uh, good Americans who will take care of uh, mowing their lawn and uh, have steady jobs and essentially pay their bills and, and drive a market. I think over time, as that uh, system that we put into place, that very transactional approach that we put into place has matured, what you've seen is that a lot of distortions have come to play, a lot of distortions that we've tried to overcome by increasing financialization. But to me, like the central idea of home ownership is a, is a good one. I think people should want to own their home, especially when they've found a place that they want to be rooted in. You know, if you find a community where you you want to be, yes, instead of paying rent to someone else, pay that dollar amount to yourself, build up your own home equity and your own wealth in that place, and try to have something for later on in life. This is very prudent and makes a lot of sense. And actually, I think is one of the great parts of the American system and home ownership. It's when you turn home ownership into like a get rich quick scheme or a casino or something that you can cash out on equity when you want to take a vacation. To me, that's that's where we've really gone off the rails. That's an important distinction. And that's where I didn't agree with the author that home ownership is the problem in and of itself. But I do agree that a toxic culture around home ownership is the problem. We essentially validate the desires and perceptions of people who own over the people who rent. And in so many places, we've favored those perceptions over the government's need to support the health, safety, and welfare of all people, regardless of their investment position. What I appreciate about the Yimby movement is that it means people who own homes would recognize that keeping up with housing demand is more important than micromanaging neighboring investments. I think that there's consensus to build in that space based on existing context. I don't think, for example, my neighborhood of one to 12 unit buildings needs to all of a sudden start building high rises everywhere. But I think that there's a case to be made around what Strong Towns often coins as allowing neighborhoods to build to the next increment. And especially when development pressure is rising in a way that is pricing people out and keeping people out of ownership positions. I want to also address the nimbyism issue because I think it has a lot to do with people's perception about what they are entitled to as a homeowner. So as you know, I'm a new homeowner after being a renter for many, many years. And the reason we wanted to own a house is because we felt like we were essentially paying for someone else's investment with very little influence over the property itself. So as a homeowner, I am now invested in this building and in a sense, I'm invested in the community too. And this means that I have some level of entitlement or privilege about what happens to my home. I can repaint the living room, whatever color I want. I can update appliances, redo the flooring, whatever. 
And the downside is that I am now invested in a building and have to take care of all of the maintenance. So when anything goes wrong, I'm the one with the burden of the risk associated with owning this house. And I no longer have someone else to call when things go bad. So it's important to note that these entitlements have limitations and you know, I'm entitled to make changes to my property so long as they conform to any zoning or building codes out there. I can't just do whatever I want. And the question that I have as it pertains to NIMBYism is to what extent homeowners in a community are actually entitled to what goes on with other properties, particularly when there's a pressing need for new housing. The author talks a lot about how new homeowners often become NIMBYs who resist development because they are now required to protect their investment from new development, which I think is kind of a broad generalization. What I find curious about this is whether or not we can actually prove that new development undermines home values. That's an argument you often hear from people who are opposed to new development. And I don't know that I've ever seen data to suggest that that is true, but I haven't seen the contrary data either. But without data, I wonder why this is such a common argument against new development And as homeowners, what are we really entitled to when it comes to controlling the outcomes of neighboring investments? And in addition to that, is it even the government's role to protect your investment at all? I don't think that I can say it is, and I don't think I can look myself in the mirror and tell myself that the outcome of my home investment triumphs over all other community needs. There's a lot there. I think that, you know, to answer the last question, does a community have a stake or an aligned interest in your housing uh, investment. I think the investment part, no, but in the stability and wealth creation of your property, I think the answer is yes, of, of course they do. Especially, you know, a place like Kansas City, a place like mine where property taxes are such a big deal, but also in other places where just you're trying to create wealth and stability in a community, you want people who own homes to have those homes be stable, uh, wealth-producing types of investments. I think where we run into the problem is the idea that those investments should go up every year and it should pay off for you, even if you only want to stay for a year or two or three it's interesting because this article that we're, we're talking about had a stat in there about millennial home ownership, and it made the case that baby boomers, it was like 35% or something, I can't remember the exact number, but it was, it was a significant percentage owned homes by the time they were relatively young. And, and millennials, it's like 4%. They're way, way, way behind. And the inference there is that, well, this is because home ownership is so difficult today. Millennials are so overburdened with debt, and uh, there are all these intrinsic things that baby boomers have shut out. You know, people coming after them and, and living the same lifestyle. I think there's truth to that, and I think that the deal that baby boomers were sold, or that they helped engineer for themselves, was one of you know a static transaction that then requires this kind of dynamic system to come along and bail them out or, or buy them out and, and, and have a transition. And they've essentially created systems that stifle that dynamism. So in a sense, I think like the comeuppance for baby boomers is, is around the corner. I mean, they've been able to engineer a number of housing bubbles in order to kind of prop this thing up. But it, it feels very tenuous to me, especially that other number you know, the 4% ownership, it's just, it's just not tenable. 
But if you dig into that number a little bit, there's also a big difference between baby boomers and millennials. I mean, I got married when I was 22. That was ridiculously young. I mean, I'm having a 25th wedding anniversary this December. I'm only 47. I don't know anyone in our age group who's even close to that. I mean, very few people, you know, my age got married that young. In your age, people are putting off marriage even longer. Marriage and family formation is something that is happening now in people's late 20s or early 30s or sometimes even later than that. And so there might be an aspect of this that is delayed homeownership more than being priced out of homeownership or not having it available. There's a cause and effect there because are you delaying homeownership because you're broke or are you, or are you delaying homeownership for other reasons? I think what I resist more than anything is the oversimplification of this down to it's, it's NIMBYs or it's uh, financialization or it's static zoning codes or it's the housing market is this complex dynamic environment. And really, I feel like what we're seeing is an emergent phenomena of housing unaffordability that we're not going to be able to tackle by just one kind of set of strategies, we actually have to create a dynamic market. And we lack that today. Yeah. And it makes me wonder how you actually start to de-financialize the housing market without it kind of falling apart. And I think a lot of these problems are tied to this expectation that we've been sold that housing is going to be this ever-increasing asset and that it's going to produce some sort of return on investment. I've always been really skeptical about that because there's tons of costs that are associated with owning a home. There's the costs of taxes, there's interest, there's maintenance over time, and then there's also inflation. So we all know that whether or not you are eventually going to have some sort of return on investment has a great deal to do with location and timing and luck meaning that we can't universally say that all home ownership is going to produce some sort of return on investment and be this really good, stable financial investment. For me personally, and maybe I'm a sucker for thinking this way, I don't really expect the value of my home to surpass inflation, plus all the costs associated with owning my home. But if my home were to go up with inflation, that is essentially making it akin to putting a portion of my living expenses each month into a savings account that I could leverage if needed, aka building equity. So it does seem like there's this perception that housing is supposed to be this high returning financial investment. And that is a perception that naturally conflicts with our society's need to have more affordable housing options. And you know, you you brought up the baby boomers, and that that generation has, in theory, a tremendous amount of equity in the homes that they own. And I wonder how much of that is actually true equity. The theory is that there are people to eventually buy these homes for this inflated price, and if there aren't people to buy all these homes, then where is that coming from? Yeah, I don't think it's real wealth. I feel like this is the problem. We reached a point. Sometime in the 1980s, I would estimate, and maybe it was earlier than that, I I don't know, but we we reached a point in this suburban experiment where the way things were going was was no longer working. Like the feedback loops were broken. And instead of 
migrating back to something that was more dynamic at the block level where you would have people get into starter homes and then add on to those and then sell those off and, and have neighborhoods that would evolve and change over time. We decided to stick with the static model. You know, let's build this neighborhood all at once to a finished state. Let's lock it in amber and let's have it stay there. And the, the way we created, you know, the increasing value that is needed to make a system like that work is we artificially boosted it through financialization. So we said, let's pour a lot of money into this system. Let, let's direct a lot of resources. So let's lower interest rates. Let's lower down payments. Let's create subprime mortgaging standards. Let's encourage banks to give subprime loans. Let's create a whole line of home equity products where we can help people cash out their, uh, their savings so that the fact that they're not earning as much money, the fact that they're you know, falling behind financially, they can make up by tapping into this home equity. We have essentially put off dealing with a lot of difficult problems in our broader economy by having the housing market bear the burden of that. As you see, fewer and fewer people participating in the housing market, our ability to, in a sense, uh, rig or you know, fiddle with the, the dials and have that financialization work out to people's benefit is decreasing over time. I feel like you see this in, in growing wealth inequality. I think that that is the part that has to break. And you ask the question, how do we fix housing without, without breaking the whole like financial system with, with dealing with this, you know, financialization problem? Um, I, I feel like the way we do it is we start at the entry level point and we start doing that locally. We start finding ways to locally finance that so that actually the, the poorest people and the people with the least resources can get into something that from a financial product standpoint is scaled to them, that they can then start building wealth around outside of the crazy market that the rest of us are forced to operate in. Yeah. Most of the time we are just coping with all of these other distortions at all all different levels. And so it's really hard to find the solution to such complicated problems. And I feel like this discussion is just the tip of a very complicated iceberg. You know, when it solves the problem for one generation and it creates a worse problem for subsequent generations, that is just an untenable position over time, right? I mean, at some point, just demographics will force a shift here. I think it's inevitable. It's just a matter of, you know, what does that shift look like? Does it look like, you know, millennials going from making $45,000 a year to $450,000 a year with housing prices staying where they're at? Or does it look like the half million dollar home becoming a $100,000 home? I don't really know, but one of those two has to happen or some combination of it. Exactly. Well, on that note, we are going to wrap up with The Down Zone, which is the part of this show where we can share anything that we have been reading, listening to, or just other activities that have been captivating our attention these days. So Chuck, what have you been up to? I know I talked earlier this year about reading the book Union by Collard Woodard, and I was enjoying it a lot. I think this is about the time, though, that I had my concussion this summer because I, I never finished it. And I went back now in the last week and finished it and really found it very interesting. I'm going to tell a little story. My daughter, uh, my youngest one, came home from school years ago. And I can't remember how we were having this conversation, but she insisted that Woodrow Wilson owned slaves. 
And I said, no, like, look at his age. He was president in 1916, 1914. Like he, he did not own slaves. And this has been like a, basically like a joke in our family because she said, you know, Woodrow Wilson is a horrible president and a horrible this. And the reason why is because he owns slaves. And like, Stella, you got your history wrong. Oh no, this book went into how the, <laughs> it wasn't him specifically, but it was certainly his family owned slaves. I came out of this book with a completely I never had a great, you know, uh, vision of Woodrow Wilson, but I came up with a completely different view of Woodrow Wilson, his presidency and his life uh, after finishing the book, because basically the last third kind of centered around him. I was listening to it on Audible and I had to play a, a portion for Stella and she just has smiling ear to ear because I said, kid, you were right and dad was wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Woodrow Wilson's family owned slaves. And so, yeah. So we have for the record that you were wrong and that your daughter schooled you. My daughter, and, and this has been like since fourth grade. So she's in eighth grade now. So like, this is something she came home from school. Like your teacher is telling you something that's not right. You know, like, no. And yeah, no, her teacher was right. She's right. <laughs> Dad was wrong. I, I should be more humble. Yes. Well, <laughs> it's good to to humbly admit when you were wrong. And Colin Woodard is such a good writer. I I loved that book and would recommend you know any of his books. He, they're so thorough and his storytelling is just so good. So I'm glad that you got back into it. Oh yeah, it's fantastic. I've actually been reading a book that you recommended a few weeks ago called "The Myth of Capitalism: Monopolies and the Death of Competition." Yes. So for those who didn't hear Chuck's last recommendation, it's written by Denise Hearn and Jonathan Tepper. And I just feel that this book is painting a clearer picture for me around why our economy seems to be functioning in this way that is inherently unfair. And, you know, people in my generation, especially millennials, often point to capitalism as sort of the root primary cause of all the inequality that we see in our society. And this book really provides a perspective around why what we are seeing is not exactly pure capitalism. And it's rather this, this system of market consolidation that is drastically limiting opportunities available to people. So I'm only on chapter five, so no spoilers, please. But I so much appreciate you sharing this book with me. I'm glad you're enjoying it. There, there is one chapter, and it might be chapter five, where uh, they start the chapter by saying, like, this chapter will make you mad. Um, and, and then they go through and they basically list like all the different industries that have experienced consolidations and are now a monopoly or a duopoly or, or what have you. And by the end of the chapter, I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty pissed off right now. <laughs> like that, yeah. that was, that was crazy. That was not, I'll give you one example. This is not a spoiler, but, but at one point they bring up the funeral home industry and I'm like, come on, you're joking me. And they're like, yeah, 80% of all funeral homes are owned by one company. That is just bizarre. The idea that, you know, uh, you would go to uh, in this time of distress and be like, I need help. And I always assume that like all these local funeral homes are giving you their own local service and a local person. And there might be a local franchisee, uh, but all the pricing and all the services and everything is set because it's, it's essentially a national monopoly. Yeah, it's it's essentially very very large corporations cooperating with one another in a way that is like a monopoly but is legally not a monopoly and 
I think that there's there's really something to having decentralized markets and having more businesses doing doing different types of work and competing and and what happens when you don't have competition in a marketplace and what that leads to. I'll, I'll say that the, the firm that I work for, we, we're a mid-sized firm. We're not very big. And we are 100% employee-owned. So everyone who works here has some sort of ownership in the company. And I, I feel that that model makes a lot of sense, that people should have ownership in where they work. And it provides more opportunity and more incentive than just simply working for some large company and having no say in in the future of where you work. I think what I like most about the book is it it really added to the freedom that I have felt recently to not have to defend capitalism. I grew up at a period of time when communism was at its death. And my generation specifically is, is just bewildered by people younger than me who are calling for communism or socialism or, or some, you know, larger uh, stake because we, we watch this, you know, we watch like we, we won and they lost and they lost for really good reasons. These were despotic places. And the idea now is that, well, you know, they weren't doing it right. Like we're going to do socialism differently or do communism differently. And that's always rung hollow with me. But the idea that we're doing capitalism right is also not correct. And I, I think what this does is it frees those of us who like markets. And I had a really nice conversation with Denise Hearn about markets and market feedback. Those of us who like markets to be able to, in a sense, ditch the capitalism moniker and say, you know what, we are for market competition. Let's try to create markets where there is competition and we can use that competition to drive good outcomes. And to me, that that is a system that is looking that looks different than certainly what we have today looks different than what Marx would describe as capitalism, but you know doesn't look like a centralized, top-down, dictate, uh, kind of centrally managed economy. It looks like a market-based system. And uh, yeah, the book is really helpful in explaining how we get there. Yeah, it's a great book. I would recommend anybody read it and you know, try to try to have an open mind when you read it. I think that for me, I am interested in systems that empower people at the local level and have the best outcomes for the most amount of people. I don't think that anybody has the perfect view of what that looks like, but it's incredibly important that we figure that out. <laughs> There's the sirens. <laughs> uh-huh. Sounds like you're in trouble. Nah, not me. That's good. <laughs> well, thanks for talking with me today, Chuck. And that's all we have for today. It's nice to chat with you. It's always great to chat with you. Don't uh, don't get in any trouble this weekend. You know, don't get spooked or uh, get tricked or anything. I will not. Tomorrow's the full moon, so even even spookier. Uh huh. Have fun. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck. You bet.